you ever heard a strange noise in the middle of the night? Hello? Ever seen something you couldn't quite explain? What's that? Ever been visited by a loved one in a dream? What are you? Psychic mediums Katie Manning and Michelle Lyons-Polito talk about it all. Welcome to the Psychic on the Scene podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our 50th episode of Psychic on the Scene. We hit the big 5-0. And um, very exciting. And uh, I am excited and grateful to have on tonight's guest, Jim Tracy. Welcome. Thank you. And um, always joining with me, so I don't forget, Michelle Lyons-Polito, my wonderful friend and co-host. Hey there. And my other wonderful friend and co-host is Dee Scott. Hey. (laughs) So this, tonight's episode, which is so fitting for our 50th episode Mm -hmm. on Psychic on the Scene, came about because I was looking for new material to watch on Netflix. So I put it out on my Facebook page. Hey, what do you guys suggest? I love true crime and we love horror and somebody's sister (laughs) who is a client of mine and a fan said, you should read my brother's book. And um, now here's a weirder part of this, Jim. I've been dating um, Jimmy, my Jimmy for the last year and a half. His family is from Indian Lake, part of his family. Mm. So every once in a while, he would make a joke or say, and not a joke, like a sick joke, but he would say, oh, we shouldn't park the car here. We shouldn't park, you know, um, we don't want to get, um, we don't want to get stopped by Garrow or something like that. (laughs) I had no idea what he was talking about. And I consider myself to be kind of knowing about things like that within the capital region or close by. So um, about a week before, he's explaining the story to me of why he said this, even before your sister suggested it. Well, that's crazy. he no sooner gets done telling me the whole story, and I'm, I'm absolutely dumbfounded. Doesn't your sister suggest you? And then I, your book, every time I Googled, kept coming up. So mm-hmm. it, it was fascinating that that was even a close link as well. So welcome. Thank you. Um, welcome, Jim. And I, I'm so absolutely thrilled that you're here. So let's start first. Um, I really want to talk about your your connection with this case of uh, Robert Garrow. Okay. Um, well, Robert Garrow became a legend, legendary name in the summer of 1973 in the Adirondack Mountains. Um, there was a series of murders up there and the public learned that this man named Robert Garrow, an ex-convict, um, dangerous man was running loose at the height of the tourist season Mm. so in a in a place in an area by the way that probably nobody ever thought that they would ever encounter anything negative other than maybe getting you know nicked with a a fishing hook or something like that in the woods exactly exactly when and when it started people were very skeptical that that it was dangerous uh you know many of them carried weapons for, you know, because of wildlife and the, right. it was a big area. And um, Hamilton County, where this took place, is the least populous county in New York. Mm-hmm. Their last really? trial was in 1929. Oh. So these kind of things didn't, ha- didn't happen up there. 
So he was born in the infamous Denimora. Yes, he, he was born in uh, Danamora, and Danamora. Uh, family moved when he was very young to Mineville, Witherby, yeah. which is in the town of Mariah in Essex County, um, very near Lake Champlain. And uh, so he knew the Adirondacks. Um, so anyways, let me go back to uh, um, the, how this case began. Yes. which was on the evening of Saturday, 14, Saturday, July 14th, 1973. Oh. A young couple, 23-year-old Danny Porter and his 21-year-old girlfriend, Susan Petz, um, took a one-night camping trip to the Adirondack Mountains on a Saturday. Um, Porter was a rising star in national politics at 23, a Harvard graduate. Mm. Um, graduated at the top of his class. He had uh, went to work for George McGovern, who ran for president in 1972, and eventually won the Democratic nomination, but was defeated by Nixon. Sue Petz was a journalism major at uh, Boston University and a reporter at a new weekly newspaper in Boston. And uh, she was roommates with a uh, woman today who's a well-known novelist, Amy Bloom. That was her best friend and roommate. Oh, oh so, wow. And, decided and and uh i guess i guess you would call this the butterfly effect but um right on saturday night july 14th they decided to go to the adirondacks and lo and behold a man named robert garrow from syracuse was headed to the adirondacks and somehow they crossed paths and porter was murdered and sue disappeared and at the time police had no idea uh who had who had uh, perpetrated the crime? All they had was uh, um, a call, a missing persons report that Porter and Pets had not returned to Boston. Mm. Um, right, and it sounds like day. her family was her family. Am I correct? Were they from like the West Coast? And... Yeah, so her family was from uh, Skokie, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. And uh, his family was from Mansfield, Ohio, and they were both living in Boston at the time, the, the, the couple. And uh, Sue's parents didn't even know she had gone camping because oh, it was yeah. just a one night trip. She, she didn't uh, tell that she didn't bother to tell her parents who she was close with that she was going to camp, you know, that night. And uh, anyways, a man named Pat Cadell, who later became quite famous, worked for Jimmy Carter helped produce the West Wing television show. And, uh, and uh, the last 15 years has been a Fox uh, political analyst. Um, oh, wow. Who passed away last year. He, uh, he called police when they didn't return to Boston. And police oh. in New York uh, fluffed it off saying, you know, while they're, 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 in, their young, they're in their early 20s, they're sure to show up. And uh, then on Wednesday, July 18th, two days after Cadell called police, a man reported an abandoned car in northern Warren County in the uh, hamlet of Weavertown. The car was parked on a dirt road. Uh, police right. investigated and found nothing wrong. But with the news that the car had been located, Porter's and Pets' parents flew into um, Albany and drove to South Clones Falls for, to file a missing persons case. And Pat Cadell and three of his friends drove to the Adirondacks 
and asked police if they could look around where the car had been parked. And uh, they found the body of Danny Porter. And oh, my God. And, I can't um, even imagine that. Um, they were quite upset with police for having searched that road and not found uh, their friends. Right. And, uh, and keeping in mind what you said, too, this is back in the 70s. Um, not to say that, that police didn't do their due diligence of checking for things and doing normal investigation, but there wasn't the kind of forensic evidence or, or the way they study things like they do now. Yes, exactly. And, and, and it was such an aberration to, to, to ha you know, yes. have uh, trouble up there that police just didn't buy it. Well, they, they did, they did investigate on Friday morning, July 20th, and, or I'm sorry, Thursday morning, July 19th, they, they investigated the abandoned car and there was really nothing amiss. The car was parked and uh, locked. The keys were gone. Um, no scuffle marks, no blood marks, no indication of any trouble. So they assumed the kids would, would, you know, come back from wherever they were camping, hiking, rafting. Right. And, uh, but of course, Pat Cadell knew his friends better than police. And so he knew something was wrong and he went and they found the body. And, and of course now they became suspects because Cadell had $150,000 life insurance on Porter because oh. they owned the uh, political polling company together. Oh, okay. So police began to investigate that, but they really didn't have many leads. What all they had was a um, locked car and a body. They had no idea where Sue Pats was. They assumed she ran into the woods. And um, ironically, and at this time, wait a minute. So at this time, he's not yeah. even he's not even on. Garrow's not even on their radar. They don't no. even have that name. There's nothing nope. connecting them. Okay. Nothing, nothing at all. Um, so what, what, what transpires is, uh, well, let me back up when, when uh, Porter's and Pets' parents are filling out a missing person report in South Glens Falls where the, where the state police were located, um, police got a call that the Porter's body had been found. Oh, boy. So the, the four parents learned right there that that Porter was dead and that Sue, Sue Pats was missing. And uh, so uh, the parents flew, went back home and police assumed that Pats ran into the woods when Porter was murdered. And so a massive search in northern Warren County where the car was found in the town of Johnsburg Hamlet of Weaver Town, uh, police searched and searched. It became one of the, it became the biggest police action in Warren County history. Uh, there had been plenty of drowned swimmers in Lake George and missing right. hunters, but but never a, a murder and a missing person. Right. And, and they they searched and searched and searched. And um, um, back in Chicago, the Pets has sought out a psychic. That's what uh, I wanted grandfather. to ask about. <laughs> Sue's grandfather went to, oh, I don't have her name, but she was the top psychic in the city of Chicago. Wow. And she told the grandfather that Sue was deposited in her body had been, she had been taken to a place where there was strip mining, a mining facility. Mm -hmm. And um, she even cut out a piece of map and circled the Hamlet of Mineville, which was about wow. an hour 
part of where she was. And she said her, the abductor had long hair. That was the only thing she got wrong. Uh, the man was bald that abducted her, but, but he did wear wigs. Oh, maybe oh. And he was that. a big man, correct? He was very yeah, tall. He was, he, he was, he was six foot and 220 pounds of muscle. Um, you know, uh, not from weightlifting, but the kind of muscle you get from working on a farm where yeah. thick everywhere from ankle to neck and yeah, very strong man. So anyways, um, they, the, the investigator didn't buy into the psychic thing because his experience, he knew, he knew investigators who believed in psychics, but in his, in his experience, um, they were cooks volunteered or loved ones brought, brought them in resulted in uh, wrong information and wasted time. So he, he, he kept, you know, he kept, he made a mental note of the letter, but, but, uh, um, didn't put a lot of uh, faith into it. So the search for pets on the, uh, went on for uh, two weekends. And then the following weekend, while they were still searching for another murder happened 40 minutes up the road. Oh. And it was identical to this murder. Um, man was tied to a tree, a young man, long hair and stabbed to death. And so they figured it, they knew it was the same culprit. Right. And that was Sunday, July 29th, 1973. The young man was an 18-year-old Philip Dombluski, who was an honors student from Mount Pleasant High School. Yep, and all Schenectady residents in that Schenectady group. Schenectady resident, and uh, he was headed to uh, Union College in the fall, and they went up there Saturday night to go fishing, him and three friends, and uh, Garrow, Mr. Garrow apprehended them and tied the four of them to trees. His, his mission was to kill the three men and take the girl with him that was in the party, and um, while he was killing Dombluski, the other three were able to escape and go for help. Mm -hmm. And uh, Garrow uh, left and uh, hid in the woods. And that night he came out in his car to try to escape and they chased, police chased him. And uh, so they identified a suspect on uh, Monday, July 30th, Robert F. Garrow, who at the time lived in Syracuse and was a married father with uh, two teenage kids. Wow. And, um, you know, and then each day, you know, the story grew um, and the public kind of became enraged with police because it was taking so long to catch them. Well, but one of the accounts and you might have actually been on the the um, I listened to a, a podcast. One of the accounts said that those four people from Schenectady that had gone up there, he I think it was the night prior, came to their tents and at gunpoint threatened to, you know, kill them. But he said he was only there to siphon gas. And the one guy, I think Phil is the one that, you know, spoke up. And <clears throat> that's when he tied them all up. And then when the other three escaped and they got people to come to the woods, they, they it sounds like they got law enforcement as well as locals. He was still there and he just kind of like, looked at them and literally walked back into the woods and was, they weren't able to find him. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That exactly. itself is just weird and spooky that he makes yeah. eye contact with them, doesn't get even frazzled that he's being pursued and just takes off into the woods. And then they yes. couldn't find him for a yes. while. And, Mind boggling. And, yes. And that happened on all that happened on Sunday morning. Um, that was their first encounter with him. 
they they had pitched a tent on Saturday night at about 10:30. The campsite they were supposed to stay at, a public campground, was full, so they had to make do. And they found a little um, clear grass clearing on on this old road, and and so they they set up camp there. And uh, on Sunday morning is when Garrow approached the tent, and he had prearranged all this. He had been watching the tent. And, uh, wow. So, uh, but what happened? When the when he killed the first kid and the other three escaped and went looking for help, uh, um, nobody believed them. Oh. You know they they thought the kids were on drugs, and uh, so there was a slow reaction to, to, to helping them. And wow! When they finally did spot uh, Garrow, you know he he stood up and walked into the woods and and. Uh, so state police put out a warning that he is very calm under uh, stressful situations. And, and what that, why that is, 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 is um, he was a true psychopath. He really was when you read with psychopathy. History. And one of the characteristics of psychopathy is they have a low aptitude for fear. Um, they're, they're not so scared. They're, they're um, like Hannibal Lecter, his mm -hmm. blood pressure and heart rate doesn't rise while he's committing a murder. Jeez. And Garrow was oh. the same way. He just walked in the woods and he walked so nonchalantly and calm, they figured he couldn't have been the culprit. And uh, oh. so anyway, so the manhunt begins for this. Uh, that night, Garrow comes out of the woods in his car and police chase him and he abandons his car and he runs into the woods and speculator. And this manhunt begins. And this is when the public learns um, on Monday oh, that there's a massive manhunt for a murderer in the Adirondacks. I and actually saw some of that footage. It shows the, the police like on the road, they must've been stopping cars. Yes. And, yes. and you can tell it's there like were roadblocks everywhere footage. in yeah. this entire area. And, uh, um, you know, 40 miles East, West, North, South from speculator wells in Hamilton County. And no matter how many times you went through the roadblock, you had to get out of your car, open your trunk, um, and they searched it. And then back then there was no latch to the trunk. You had to use your key. Right. So this went on and on, but the whole key to the thing was, is they suspected that Garrow had taken the pets woman as a sex slave and that she was still alive, stashed in a hunting camp somewhere. So the public didn't know all this. And so they had people up there had strict orders not to kill Garrow, that they were to capture him alive because mm. they hoped oh, they sense. could interrogate him and find out where Miss Pets was. Right. And um, so this thing lasted. If you ask people up there today how long this manhunt lasted, they'll tell you it lasted all summer because it seemed like it. And even the investigators said it seemed like five months, but it but it actually lasted twelve days. Oh, but oh it, wow! All the campsites, it closed the carnival, restaurants, hotels you know, didn't have any business and people didn't believe that he was still in that same area because police hadn't caught him. So there was spottings of Garrow everywhere from, from Plattsburgh to Saratoga and everyone had to be checked out. And there was a lot of people arrested that uh, resembled Garrow and that were later let go because he had a common look yet, you know, male balding pattern and glasses and um, a lot of guys like know, that. a few people that, uh, that were, actually taken into custody wow 
Jeez. question pretty heavily. And so he was, so he was finally, uh, he was finally, uh, well, let me, let me back up a week into the manhunt. He stole a car. Oh, roadblock troop, the, a troop, two troopers pursued in their vehicle and their trooper car broke down. Oh my God. Oh, and, um, oh, by the way, just interject here. Cause we'll talk yes. about some other points in this case. I've never seen so many near misses with an individual going back to his youth that he should have been um, convicted or in that case, like apprehended right there. And he seems to get by. Yes. He, he, it's incredible. Yes. And, and, and the main investigator of, of this case, Henry McCabe from South Falls, he, you know, he, he just couldn't believe Carol's luck. It seemed every, right. at every turn, the luck favored him. And the way the trooper cars were maintained back then, um, they were well-maintained. And if a trooper didn't maintain it, he was in serious trouble. Mm. But the car went bad, right, when it was on Garrow's tail. And <laughs> so anyways, wow. we finally got a report from a woman in North River who ran a gas station. And uh, she said that Garrow filled up at her station, she was positive it was Garrow, and he and he had filled up in a white Pontiac Tempest, and that was the car that was uh, had been stolen out of the area, the speculator area. Mm. So that's in they were uh, he was headed to Warren County, so they figured he was going to Mineville, and the the manhunt shifted from Wells Speculator in Hamilton County north to Essex County, and the reason he went to Mineville was he had family there. Oh, okay. He had lost his glasses when he ran from police. The police didn't know this, but he needed his glasses. He had terrible vision. Um, he couldn't see from 20 feet away. He couldn't tell a trooper from a rock, from a tree. And so, oh, wow. so he actually, on Monday night, August 6th, at around 11 p.m., he visited his sister. And he stayed there a couple hours. It's disputed how long he stayed there, but he visited his uh, sister. And uh, on Tuesday morning, Jim Campbell from uh, Channel 6 News saw Garrow's nephew coming out of uh, the, that, that house that Garrow was at the night before. And Campbell didn't know anything. Nobody knew that Garrow had visited. He just wanted to get a quote about the kids. What did they think? Yeah. And the, the kids said, oh, he was in the house last night. Oh, my gosh. And so oh, <laughs> Campbell, before he wrote, reported it, he, he went and told state police. And to do damage control, state police actually went on the news and explained how it all happened, how Carol was able to visit his sister and why they didn't call police. And, and uh, meanwhile, back in Massachusetts, back to the original part of the story, and back in Chicago and Ohio, the families are now learning that the... Uh, uh, the parents of the victims, Sue's, Sue's parents and Danny Porter's parents, and Phil Dombuski's parents and Pat Cadell, Porter's business partner, they're all learning that the family's helping Garrow elude police. Ooh. And they're absolutely oh. shocked. And, and then they, they become disdainful towards the Adirondacks and its inhabitants because of this. You know, to them, a lot of more well-educated uh, people, they just couldn't understand what was going on up here that 
you know, here they can't catch this guy and the family's, you know, helping them. And so it, so it was, it was quite a mess. And, uh, lo and behold on, uh, on, uh, the 12th day of the manhunt, he was shot and wounded by a uh, forest ranger from Boston Spa named Guy LeBlanc, mm. who's still alive and has never spoken with anyone about this case, even though reporters have uh, hounded him for years. He's never said a word about it. No. Wow. Uh, but anyways, he shot and wounded Garrow. And, and now they have Garrow in custody. Police finally have him and they can learn where Miss Pets is. Well, they can't get Garrow to talk. And they take him to Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital in Plattsburgh, which was about an hour north of, of where he was captured in Mineville. And uh, they interrogate him for several days and they can't find the location of Miss Pets. So now enters Garrow's two lawyers, Frank Armony mm. and Frank Belgi, both from Syracuse. And they take Garrow, they take Garrow's case and Garrow tells them everything. But by the way, to back that up, when mm -hmm. I heard the interview with the, um, and it's a dated podcast. And again, I think you were on it. Um, the attorney that was speaking was a sweet old man by the, by this point. I don't even know if the other one was still alive. No. And he actually said he took the case begrudgingly. Like he never expected, like, I guess they said, like, you, it's your responsibility to take this case. The judge basically ordered them to. Well, that, that was his narrative. Okay. He did say that on that, on that podcast, but in reality, um, he was more than willing to take it. He was very excited. Mm. Oh. He actually went on television during the manhunt, claiming he was Garrow's lawyer for Garrow to get a hold of him and turn himself in. So he has kind of come up with his own narrative, but um, understood. Okay. Okay. This case. And, uh, and he made sure everybody knew he was Garrow's lawyer and um, Garrow had paid him in the past. Oh, right. So he had actually, Garrow actually ended up transferring the deed of his house into this lawyer's name. So let's stop defense. there for one second. Yes. I want you to talk about in the things I've, I've discovered about this sicko. Um, he, he's born March 4th in 1936. Correct. His first arrest is in 1961 for a rape in well, Albany. Where yeah, he not his first arrest first. though. Oh, that wasn't his first arrest. Okay. No. Um, and they, they keep saying that he is like raped, like he keeps raping over and over again, and he'll do some time, but then released or the people that he's attacked, the girls that he's attacked, don't press charges. So he moves on to somebody else. Yeah, his deal, his life story was um, quickly his criminal background. He was he, parents of people who later become psychopaths. Mm -hmm. They know there's something wrong with their child, but they can't put their thumb on it. Mm -hmm. it. Was that case? And so, when he was seven years old, they sent him to a farm, nearby farm, to work. Yes. And uh, he lived there, and he got in trouble there a couple times. And it was for really sick stuff, like to do with animals. Yeah. Yes, he was into bestiality as a child. 
um, I mean, within the animal cruelty. Yes, um, which is all the serial killer signs. Anyways, he moved home back home when he was 15 and he got a fight with his father and they sent him to reform school. Oh, so yes. He I was li listed that. as a juvenile delinquent. Yeah. Uh, he went to a reform school in Rochester at 16, got out a year later at 17, joined the Air Force uh, where he was selling pornography. Yeah. Spent most of the time in the brig. Got out when he was 19, and he moved to the um, city of Albany in 1955, where he was arrested several times for, for much minor incidences. And then his uh, crime life hit a crescendo in 61 when he was, uh, a, he, he, he approached a couple, he knocked the boy out, and he dragged the girl in the woods and raped her. And he went to prison in 61. But he was also a suspect in the 1959 murder of Ruth Whitman. Oh, we've covered that. Who? Yes, he 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 is probably the possibly the culprit of that. Um, I haven't read the file yet, but he, he is not like the main suspect in that case. Ruth Whitman, who died in the December of '59 near Albany Airport. Yeah. So and is the other the other one is is um is it Blackman? Kate Kate Black. Um, yeah, I don't know that one. Blackburn, Kate Blackburn. Black, yes, and that was all covered. Um, by our other um, podcaster oh, and I we see. talked about and, it on this show. You guys covered Ruth Whitman too? So that was one of the cases that she um, um, covered. Uh, Dee, what's the name of um, her show? Upstate Phoebe? Unsolved. Upstate yeah, it's Unsolved. Up, it's Upstate Unsolved. They, they haven't been doing, oh. Phoebe doesn't work here anymore. And okay. uh, oh, oh, I, I know. I talked to Phoebe, I think. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, God, she, what a small she, world. She was from Corinth. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> so anyway, so in 61, his life hits a crescendo and he gets 20 years sentence for rape. And he, and uh, anyways, he uses his psychopathic personality. He becomes a model prisoner, mm. Such a model prisoner that he gets out. The 20 year sentence is reduced to six and two thirds. Oh my God. And in 1968, He's going to start over now and he doesn't want to go back to the city of Albany because he's known there. So he goes right. to the Syracuse and the wife stays with him and the kids move. The kids are uh, eight and 10 now. They, they move to Syracuse. So the family moves to Syracuse mm -hmm. wow. and shortly later he begins his uh, same thing, raping and getting away with it. And, that to me was shocking in some of the investigative work I've done. Hmm. I mean, obviously, like we just said, it, uh, so much of it is on the internet, but that it said more than once that he had been arrested and then released because he, they, they wouldn't press charges. They wouldn't move forward. The, the victim wouldn't come forward, which <clears throat> I just, I can't even believe that. To me, it's just, I don't know, especially if he had a prior I think, you know, the sign of the times, I hate to say it, but um, it, it was hard, I believe, especially back then for women to step forward. Because um, I know within my family history, there's some things that, you know, I look back and I shake my head at it. It's like, why didn't they do this? Why didn't do, they do that? And it's just, I mean, we're lucky to be born when we are. <laughs> but so right. And, and, and let me clarify his life in Syracuse. He, he, he was raping, but but nobody knew who was doing it. Um, oh. A lot of girls reported being raped. 
but you know, all they had was a description of a five foot 11 white male. And uh, the first time he ever got in trouble was in the fall of 72 when he picked up a, a Syracuse couple, um, Lenny Garner and Karen Lutz. And he had them in his car. He picked them up hitchhiking. and Which was very popular at the time. Yes, which we didn't even think about now. Right. At the time, it was a big deal. Everybody did it. Everybody hitchhiked. And, uh, and uh, they were able to escape his car. And that was his first criminal arrest in Syracuse. And he hired the lawyer, Armony. Mm-hmm. And Armony put on a full court press in court. Um, well, let me back up to the kids when in the car had dropped marijuana in the car because they thought it was a robbery and they didn't want him taking anything. So the, the boy had the, the night, they were both 19. The boy had pot on him and he dropped it in the car. And when they escaped the car, they got the license plate number and called police and police found, uh, went and questioned Garrow and they identified him as their abductor. And this is his first criminal trouble in Syracuse and uh, they they knew he was lying the car was still hot the pot was found in the car so anyways he was arrested for uh, um, unlawful possession of a dangerous drug and uh, false in, imprisonment and because of the pot the kids didn't pursue charges oh. the uh, what was called the Rockefeller drug laws were taken effect yes and kids were going to prison for small amounts of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't press, they, they wanted to press charges, but they didn't. And uh, here's an interesting fact. Most of the time, those Rockefeller laws, people were going to jail for longer terms than somebody that was a pedophile or yes. rapist. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, Insane. Uh, yes. And, uh, and his lawyer, Armony, brought in the guy, Garrow's parole officer, Garrow's next door neighbor, who was a police officer, and his oh, employer. And they all said that, you know, this guy's perfect. Uh, He's a model citizen, is what it's Model said on citizen. And, yeah. he, and he was a model parolee. He was in this yep. guy's 50 person caseload. This was his uh, best guy. They yep. And, uh, you know, uh, the neighbors, the neighbors said, you know, on, on that street where Garrow lived, uh, everybody had some baggage, like any neighborhood, but not the Garrows. They were like the family in happy days with Richie and Joni and the, the parents. And uh, that was Garrow's, you know, psychopathic chameleon way that, you know, he, he painted. Did perfect. the wife, did so, the wife stay by his side through everything? The wife stayed with him. Yeah. Wow. And she, she was conned like everybody. And uh, so anyways, that was his only trouble in Syracuse and Armony bailed him, got him out of it. Yeah, that's and, what he uh, said. And uh, of course the book goes into a lot more detail about how he got him out of it. And, uh, and then two months later, after he was exonerated in April of 73 for that crime, two months later, he abducted a nine and 10 year old girl. Oh my God. From, from a store, uh, took him into a wooded area. And when he was finished with him, he brought him back to the same store and l- let him loose. And they remembered a lot of details of his car and him. 
they were only nine and 10, but the 10 year old really had a good memory of, of uh, the man that he drove an orange sports car, that he had a CB radio, that he had two hard hats in the back that he had a tattoo on his forearm and he had a nose that turned up like a pig's. And uh, she remembered all these details and uh, police put out a, a John Doe warrant and he was arrested three days later. And that sent him over the edge. Armini told him he could get out of it, that the girl must have been coached by police to have so much knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now, this is June of, June of 73. And he was doing court. And this is when he started getting worse. He, right. he felt like the pressure had mounted. He had a thousand dark secrets. Um, another girl had gone missing from Corcoran High School during summer school. Mm. Uh, he had been spotted near the school. So by July, was he was doing court. He kept skipping his court date and driving to the Adirondacks. And of course, that's when these wow. other kids. No way. Because he, you know, he was afraid to go back to prison. But anyways, let me get back to Miss Pets. That was the big part of the story. Is police right. desperate to find her. Um, you know, her parents are suffering back in Skokie, Illinois, and they can't get any info out of Garrow, which infuriates the police to no end because they specifically spared his life to find out where she was. They made a conscious decision. They actually held a meeting and decided they were going to spare his life. So mm. she was still um, alive, they thought. Mm. So anyways, Armini, who's very excited about this, and so excited even at a cookout, um, he can't get Garrow to tell him anything because Garrow don't trust anyone with the knowledge he has. And if he doesn't trust Armani, Armani's about the closest person to him. Right. So Armani figures he's in over his head. He's a civil lawyer in a murder case. So he goes and asks his best friend, Frank Belge, who's the top criminal defense attorney in upstate New York, to help him. And Belge tells him he's crazy. There's no way you can win this case. Um, those people in Hamilton County were so upset this summer that a jury of 12, 12 people are not going to exonerate this guy under any circumstances. Um, and... Anyways, Frank begs him to go see Garrow. Just go see him. And uh, so Belgi says, I'll do you a favor. I'll go see him. So they get to the hospital. And Armani had been there several times. And Belgi was kind of a boisterous, uh, rambunctious, kind of outspoken person. And uh, Armani and Belgi go in to see Garrow. And the cops put their hand on Belgi and say, we don't know you. Only Armani's allowed in to see him. Belgi gets into a wrestling match with two, two state troopers in the hospital. God. Oh, jeez. It goes on for about five minutes before the troopers finally pin him against the wall. And Belgi says, uh, Frank, you got yourself a cold uh, co-counsel now. And uh. that's how Belgi takes the case on that unfortunate note. And, but Garrow won't talk. He's even worse with Belgi than he would, was with Armani. And what happens with psychopaths when you interrogate them? amnesia, blackouts, falling asleep, can't remember, those things pop up constantly. Mm. That's what Garrow was. Is it real or is it is it fake? Fake. fake. It is fake. It is, a, yeah. it is all a persona, yeah. a, a thing that they seem to do over and over again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, uh, Belgi threatens to quit. 
So Armani, out of desperation, he wants on the case so bad, he decides he's going to hypnotize Garrow. He learned hypnotism as a party trick. Oh my gosh. And he's used it before, but he's never used it in law because it's inadmissible and, you know, other ramifications. But he's so psychics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So he's desperate. So he hypnotizes Garrow. And and Mm -hmm. it's true because Garrow would later sue him for hypnotizing down the road. Well, anyway, he hypnotizes Garrow and he tells Garrow that when he comes to to tell Mr. Belgi everything. So he, Armani doesn't tell his co-counsel that he hypnotized him because he knows Belgi would go through the roof. <laughs> so, but he tells Belgi, he says, Frank, talk to him one more time. And if he doesn't talk to you, you can quit the case. And Belgi goes and sees him by himself and Garrow pours his soul out for six days. Wow. Tapes everything. And what he told him, probably no one will ever knew, but um, he, had, he admitted to many murders and many rapes. And he told him where he hid two girls' bodies that were now dead, Sue Pets, and the girl that went missing from Corcoran High School, Alicia Hawk. Um, Pets was in Mineville, just like the psychic said. And Hawk was in a cemetery behind uh, Garrow's house in Syracuse. Ugh. And the lawyers were incredulous. They, they didn't know if he was BSing them or what. Yeah, that's what you get from that too. When I was going through the information, you, th- you think that they're almost like he's fantasizing, he's making yes. this up. Yeah. Yes. So they decide to go and look and they find the bodies and they photograph them. And they decide, this particularly Belgi, who's much more well versed in criminal defense law than Harmony, who's a civil lawyer. That they can't tell authorities without Garrow's um, permission. And, and God. really drove the two attorneys was when they took their oath of office in New York State, right. were sworn in, part, part of the oath said that I shall protect the secrets of my client inviolate. Yeah. It was also the, so, so Armani was disbelieving. He's like, you know, how can we not tell authorities or the parents where these, somehow tell them where these, bodies are i mean they're absolutely desperate to know where they are naturally and uh belgi says i don't think we can you know and so mm-hmm. armani seeks counsel he goes mm-hmm. to a man named frank del vecchio who's on the state supreme court and of course he don't give him all the details but del vecchio tells him the same thing belgi tells him that you can't reveal this information right that, you know it'll throw it could throw the case into a mistrial or charges right you guys could be disbarred so anyways they they think of everything possible to how can they get this information to to authorities um it's it's starting to ruin them um belgi goes home and cries every night yeah i heard that was really evident they can't sleep they're losing you know they're crying they're emotional all the time because i think they both have children too correct they 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 both and, and belgi had lost a 15-year-old son in an accident. So oh. Armani's brother had uh, was killed in the military when his plane went missing over the North Atlantic. So they knew the loss of loved ones. And they and Armani actually knew the parents of the girl from Syracuse. Mm-hmm. So this was tearing them apart. Belgi started drinking heavily. Both yes. of them started drinking heavily. Um, but unlike today, 
you know, I, one thing I give credit to is, is today somebody would have been self-serving and done whatever was in their best interest. Mm -hmm. These guys actually did what was detrimental to them because it was their oath of office. And, um, but they looked for a way out and they finally came up with an idea. Um, one of the ideas was Mrs. Belgi wanted to go out of town and mail an anonymous letter stating where the bodies were. And her husband, Frank Belgi decided it would be dishonest because the information would still be coming from him. So they came up with the idea. They'll give the information to the state on the location of these two bodies. If the state will put Garo in a mental home. Oh, so they decided to push the burden onto the state. Then they could say, you know, it's up to the state to release this information. So they called a meeting and it didn't go anywhere. It lasted about five minutes. And the the district attorney and the main investigator from the state police said they're absolutely nuts. And if they had information on missing girls, they were going to press charges. And uh, this meeting's concluded. Oh, my God. So anyways, fast, fast forward to the summer of 74, Garrow goes on trial for the murder of the um, 18-year-old camper. Mm-hmm. He didn't have enough evidence for the murder of Porter. In the interim over the winter, a week apart, passersby found the two girls. Oh, a week apart? A week yes. apart. On Saturday, December 1st, uh, um, Sue Pets was found in the mine by two 12-year-old boys. Oh, a week later, a Syracuse University student who happened to be studying the habitat of squirrels came upon Alicia Hawk's bones. And so the bodies had been found. But when they were found, the lawyer said that uh, they, their client wasn't responsible and he, why would should police just check him? Um, yeah. So get to the trial and uh, during the course of the trial testimony, it's revealed that they knew along all along where these bodies were. It was a slip, correct? It was a slip by one of the attorneys that said, is that the one we found? It it was intentional. Oh, okay. The argument, what they did is the, the Frank Armani decided, uh, their best offense was an insanity plea because they had three eyewitnesses and Garrow's right. flight. So right. it was, you know, when you have eyeball witnesses in flight, it's almost insurmountable. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the culprit and he ran. So they decided an insanity plea. So Armani's going to do the same thing he had done in Syracuse to get him out of trouble, bring in about 15 people to say how he was this great man, perfect employee, perfect parolee, perfect father, perfect husband, and he must have just snapped and went crazy. So he subpoenas all these witnesses, and on the first day of the trial, Armani walks in, and Belgi says, we're doing a different defense. We're putting Garrow on the stand as our first witness, and he's going to tell his life story, and he's going to admit to all these crimes. Mm-hmm. We're going to think he's nuts. And, of course... Armani disagreed with that. They, they, they asked for an adjournment. They talked it over. Belgi argued, won out the argument, and they put Garrow on the stand. And 
about 20 minutes into testimony, um, Gerald started sobbing. Armani stood up and objected to his own lawyer. <laughs> Judge, the, my client has had not prepared to take the stand. He didn't know he was going to take the stand until today. Belgi told his co-counsel to shut up. The judge called a uh, recess and the jury went out and he called the two lawyers to the stand and he said, what's going on? And Belgi said, we're going to have him tell his life story and he's going to admit to uh, four more, four murders and eight rapes. So there was like a 20 minute off the record discussion. They find, they bring the jury back in and the judge warned Gerald twice, whatever you do, don't self-incriminate yourself. You have the right to not tell on yourself. And Gerald said, well, he asked a couple dumb questions like, will I be treated the same at, ja at the jail? And the judge says, yeah, your treatment will be, you know, you'll be treated just as well because, you know, they were treating him well. They didn't want to mistrial. But the judge warned him again that, listen, you know, because he knew what these lawyers were up to, that they were going to get him to tell on all the, where these bodies were mm -hmm. and why was later argued that they were trying to save their own skins by saying that we didn't we withheld the information these bodies because so that uh it was part of our insanity defense right what why they did this defense is still questionable um mm. That it's still being taught. I, I have to add here mm -hmm. to our listeners, this case from the Adirondacks, these two attorneys, this, this um, representation and, and their methods is still being taught in, in like all law schools, correct? Correct. Worldwide. Worldwide. Um, yeah, which is a, obviously the basis of your book, example. Sworn to Silence. Yes, isn't it? it's taught as an extreme example of um, upholding attorney-client privilege under the most stressing circumstances. So anyways, they disagree on the defense. Gerald tells this whole story. And when he gets to the part about Sue Petz, Belgi says, is that the body I found? Mm, a, reporter, a reporter picks up on it. Armani, meanwhile, he's cringing in the back. And... Uh, then they go on. So anyways, Garrow admits to four murders and eight rapes on the stand that day. That yeah. night, Armani physically attacks him. They get into a fist fight. Oh, God. Um, why Armani's changed reasons over the years. I think it was because of that Belgi threw his own client in. That's my own personal opinion. To, to relieve himself, to exculpate his actions for what he did. Mm -hmm. Armani said uh, he attacked him because... Uh, Belgi made another unilateral decision without his permission. Later, when I pressed Armani on it, he said, well, he knocked some of my papers over and it just happened. And But anyways, Garrow admits hmm. this. It's the reporters pick it up. And after testimony that day, a reporter said, a confused reporter said, wait a minute, you guys knew where these bodies were all along? And they said, yes, we knew where the bodies were. And when that happened, all bedlam broke out. Yeah. Oh, God, I bet. Poor Jerry didn't know what was going on, but media was coming in from all over the country. The uh, Newsweek took a photo of the two lawyers. The LA Times came from California. 
the New York Times came, everybody was here and nobody understood it. How two officers of the law could withhold this information while the parents suffered. Yeah. And uh, then the death threats came and pretty much uh, ruined the lawyers. Um, editorials poured into the newspapers. Uh, their own peers, their own other lawyers said that justice was not given a priority. Um, they both said too, um, to interject here, that they both had um, contemplated suicide. They, the one, didn't Belgi lose his practice or he closed practice? Yeah, Belgi drank himself and just left the field of law mm. a couple years after this case. Uh, Armani had a bunch of heart attacks, lost his eyes. Yes. Um, yeah, he, he contemplated suicide in his darkest moments. And uh, yes, that's, um, he does it pretty much that. ruined him. And yep. now what has happened since then, um, Bel you know, Belgi went to Florida and he died of a heart attack in 89. But in 2000, I wrote a, a six part series for the Post Star on this case. And um, Armani started taking that around to law schools and lecturing and kind of changing the narrative of, of what happened. But oh. came that we had this terrible burden that we couldn't tell on our client. We mm -hmm. upheld attorney-client privilege, which is what happened. And law schools across the country beginning giving awards to them. Yeah. To Syracuse University where they were really ostracized. They give out the uh, Frank Armani Advocacy Award for his work in this case. So Frank has become a heroic figure in legal circles because of this case. Right. But for two decades after it, you know, he, he really, he was able to rebuild his law practice, but he wasn't uh, considered heroic. But, but, you know, because he went around lecturing, newspapers started doing look back stories He's kind of become this heroic figure for what he for what he did. You think he's a hero? What's that? You think he's a hero? I I don't think he's a hero because he did a lot of dirty, crappy things like like intimidating the students with the pot so they wouldn't testify. Right. But I do see what they did as honorable, especially today. Right. Everybody is self-serving and um, looking out for themselves. You know, the, the, these guys took the path less traveled, the, the worst path, that, path they could take. They knew some of the ramifications of withholding this information. But, you know, they were raised to do, you know, with the idea that you do your duty and, and every legal thing, every legal uh, jurisdiction that they sought out so they couldn't give this information out on the well i i have a question and sure. and i don't know jim if you, if you can even answer this but if, if this crime if this man um committed these crimes now um and and still would have attorney client privilege do you think he would have gotten as far as he did on his killing spree, his rape spree? Do you think that now, the, and I'm saying this because I keep thinking to myself, I can't imagine this happening now. I couldn't imagine it happening then because I remember hearing Son of Sam and, you know, I, I grew up with that stuff, even Night Stalker, but I never That's heard That's a good question. No, it, it, it wouldn't happen today. And okay. matter of fact, a lot of mobsters talk about this that the things they did in the 70s, they couldn't do today, mm -hmm. the cameras. Good point. 
and you know cameras everywhere um and uh you know certainly they would have been able camera would have picked up a vehicle yep camera, that's true yep. cell phone coverage yeah it would never ever ever have happened today it would have never that's got far. that far um i keep thinking about how today plus you have so the sexual offender registry right that's true too right i didn't even think of that yeah, and they didn't have that back then. So when he moved to Syracuse and lived next, he here's another good part of the story. He his his neighbor two doors down was a, a well-respected Syracuse police officer. Oh right. And the police officer's son and Gerald's daughter married. No way. And um, her, his parents loved the Gerald's, and uh, but there was no. You know, what he did in Albany was just not accessible in Syracuse. You know, we had no right. offender registries. You know, there was no computer. There was nothing. And when the police officer found out that his uh, uh, son's future father-in-law committed these crimes, he just nearly fell out of his chair. He had actually gone to court and vouched for him in the abduction of the Syracuse University students. And uh, wow. so... It wouldn't happen. So is his wife still alive? Yes, Mrs. Garrow's still alive. She has never, and this sounds impossible, has never been photographed or quoted. There is no photograph, you're right. No photographs, no, no quotes in the newspaper. And during the manhunt, the head investigator, Henry McCabe from South Consuelos, he asked her, and the daughter and son to go to the Adirondacks and make a tape recording and play it in helicopters. They would blare it through the woods. And uh, the wife said, I'll do it on one condition that no reporters come near me. And state police kept reporters away. And that day, the New York Times was there amongst others. And uh, they blared these pleas over the helicopter from the wife and the son. Um, wow. You know, honey, we this is Edith. Will you please come out? We don't want to see you get hurt. Please put your rifle down. Police don't want to hurt you and they don't want you to hurt anyone else. Just come out of the wow. Way. Then the sun came on, and well, they blared these things throughout the Adirondacks and helicopters all day. And he 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 heard them, but he didn't come out. Mm. And uh his daughter refused to uh go. And uh, you know, it was later learned she she had been terribly sexually sexually abused by mm -hmm. him. Oh my God! So, are so the two children obviously are both still alive as well. Two children are alive, but uh, yes, you had asked about Edith. Edith and the son still live in the same home, right next to Syracuse <sighs> University, Irwin Avenue. Wow! Uh, between they're behind their house is Oakwood Cemetery and Morning Morningdale Park, and then above that is the main campus of SU. Wow. And the kids, they, the college kids, uh, they sled down in towards the Garrow's house. They always have, um, cause it's a hill, you know, it goes uphill to the university. Wow. And the wife and the son still live there. Um, the son hit the, uh, uh, take five lottery, New York state take five lottery in 2009 for $70,000. Uh, there was a picture of him holding the placard of the check and, it says Robert F. Garrow Jr. And wow. no, nobody caught on to 
here the state was paying 70,000 to a family that uh, they had spent millions on to catch. Um, oh my gosh. The, the daughter was a, the daughter's a very interesting story. Um, she never told anyone she was sexually abused until after her father was uh, killed. Right. Died. After her father died, she told her husband and oh. kind of put a room in the marriage because oh, no. the husband was the son of a police officer and he, you know, he felt they could have intervened and helped her. And so in 1980, she, uh, she had, it's speculated a suicide, but she was in a one car accident where she ran her, uh, husband's uh, little MGB sports car into a building on North Salina Street where they had first lived when they moved to Syracuse. And uh, she wasn't supposed to live. She was in a coma for months and months. And then she went to assisted living. She remarried and moved out. And when her second husband died, um, first husband divorced her, the second husband died, she moved back into assisted living in Syracuse. And she's still there. Um, I've spoken with her, but she can't she's so damaged physically and mentally that she can't really talk about her father. Wow. That's tragic prayers to her then. So um, take us to what happens when uh, Garrow is um, sentenced and then um, his incarceration and eventually his death. Okay. Uh, So Gareth tells his crazy life story, but um, anyways, they find him guilty on the Dombuski murder, and they sentence him 25 years to life, and he goes to the Dannemora Hospital, and because he says that he can't walk, he's wheelchair-bound, because uh, when he was captured, he was shot in the ankle, and his Achilles heel was torn, and uh, he goes to Dannemora Hospital, and then in the interim, he admits he uh, pleads guilty to the three murders he admitted to in court. The other three, Danny Porter, Susan Petz, and Alicia Hawk. And so he, he's pretty much gone for life. And he feigns his paralysis and mm-hmm. he starts suing New York State for every shortcoming possible. He has more lawsuits than a small lawyer's office. Michelle, ten thousand or ten million dollars is one of the the um, yes accountings yes. to New York He's, State. Yes, and 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 uh, they ask him what what you know what he wants, and he says he wants handicap access, which still in the seventies was very very limited. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Um, supposedly, and now they think it's a it was a con, but supposedly one of the inmates threatened to poison him in Dannemora. So anyways, official transferred him to Auburn, which is not unusual. Prisoners transfer all over the place in Max. So he got transferred to Auburn near Syracuse. And there he was examined by, I think, over 50 doctors. Half, half, they were split on their opinion. Half said he was paralyzed in the left uh, leg and arm. And the other half said he was, uh, it was, he was mobile, that it was subjective. It was all in his head. And he kept suing and suing again. And pressuring um the doctors and um in february of 78 they finally a high state official made a deal with them saying you know if you drop all these lawsuits and stop suing us what can we do and he says that he wanted to go to a handicapped facility 
and there was only one in the state, and that's in Fishkill near Poughkeepsie in the, yep. the village of Beacon. Um, it's a, it was a max prison in 1978, but it had one building, building number 13, that was elderly and handicapped. And these residents were, uh, in their final years, most of them, they're in walkers, crutches, wheelchairs. Um, so in February 1978, they transferred them there. And lo and behold, he had been exercising in his cell for five years. No, and nobody saw him. Well, many, many, many guards reported it. And officials at the top levels of administration in Albany didn't believe it. Some things haven't changed. <laughs> so anyways, he, he gets to, um, he gets to uh, fish kill in February of 78. Um, there's an incident there where he does something that no one really knows, but uh, he basically makes himself the alpha male there. Everybody's scared of him. Meanwhile, he goes to work for the guards because he can type. So the prisoners are scared of him and the guards love him because he's a snitch and he types for him. He works for him. And uh, wow. he finds another prisoner who's a young guy, not crippled, but he had couldn't, this man couldn't handle maximum security. Mm -hmm. He had a couple, had a couple breakdowns mentally. So they transferred him to the handicap elderly and handicap facility. And uh, he was 26 years old. His name was Vince Chiabica. And he was uh, doing four years for manslaughter. He, he uh, killed a man over a motorcycle business deal in Queens. Well, wow. Gerald befriended this guy because he knew he was weak-minded. And he started doing lawyer work for him as a jailhouse lawyer. And uh, started to get to know him. Well, this guy's wife would bring food every weekend. And um, so when Gerald finally, in the summer, after four months of doing law work for him, he told Vincent Shiabika that, listen, I need your wife when she brings her food to bring a gun in. And, you know, they, Vincent said, no, we can't do it. And uh, Gerald said he would send his son down to New York and kill their family. Oh my gosh. The son was 18 years old now. And uh, Vinny got scared and uh, he called his wife and she said, yeah, the son's already been here. Oh my. And, uh, you know, and she didn't know who Gerald was. So she went and looked him up and, she, you know, she, her quote was, you know, he was a bad man. I knew I could be missing like the other girls. And she had remembered seeing him when she visited and, he always, his glasses uh, were, uh, would, he wore those uh, glasses that would turn dark in the light. Mm -hmm. um, what do you call them? Trans Transitions? Yeah, transitional and, uh, lenses. So she, she always felt he was looking at her and watching her, but she couldn't see his eyes because of those glasses, but she always oh, had. Oh, wow. But anyway, she, they threatened to kill him and, and. Vinny called her several times and said, you got to do this. You got to bring a gun in because these are dangerous people. And she figured, you know, she researched it herself and knew they were. So uh, they brought a uh, gun up to the prison on Labor Day. Gerald planned it for Labor Day because there was going to be a picnic in the rec yard, uh, which had just one fence around it and no one guard and no metal detector. 
So on Labor Day, she brought a gun um, up there, met the son at a hotel, gave the son a gun. Uh, the son put it in a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, oh. filled um, mashed potatoes, gravy, and coleslaw over it. And uh, he gave it back to her and he said, you bring it through. And of course, the guards knew she brought food every single weekend. She'd never been a problem, you know, the familiarity thing. And there was no metal detector at the, where the picnic was going to be on Labor Day weekend. Mm. And the, the kid told her, you know, bring it, put it on this table. And if you make a false move, you won't make it back. You and your kids won't make it back alive to the hotel. Oh. So she did it. She brought it in and she thought it was over with. And she saw the girl and, her, and the son eating at the table. Um, Garrow secured the, the rifle on his purse, secured the pistol on his person, and his wheelchair always set off the metal detector going back into the prison. Oh, so, man. Around the metal detector. You know, instead of making the thing go off all the time, you know, every time he went in and out. Wow. Went around. So he had the gun in the prison for a week. And Mrs. Shiabika, she went back to New York. Vinny was in there. Vinny thought the gun was he was going to use on another prison prisoner. And on uh, Friday night, September 8th, um, all that summer, Garrow had, uh, they had this front porch with bars and brick columns. Every night from uh, 9.30 to 10.30, he would sit on that porch for the last hour before bed. Mm. And the guards let him, you know, it was no harm. They, and the same guy pushed him out into the porch. So on, on Friday, Friday, September 8th, he, made a dummy, put it in his bed, um, kept taking, looking at it and making sure it was really put his, he took his glasses off, put it on it, put its leg over the side. So it looked perfect. And his, his man, the guy's name was Ray Loftus. It's in the public domain. He was arrested. Uh, he lives in Chatham. Ray pushed him out onto the porch like usual. Guard checked on him. He was in his usual spot that hour on the porch. And then uh, Garrow got out of his wheelchair and used a um, mop handle to pop a couple of the bars, which had been welded thousands of times, mm. slithered through. He climbed a 15-foot fence and took off. And the property around Fishkill is acreage and acreage of woods, cornfields, grass. Yep. And Interstate 84 runs right by it. Mm -hmm. And so on Saturday morning, Garrow was nowhere to be found. And the alarms went off in the village of Beacon saying that there was an escape. And uh, they searched uh, all, all day Saturday. They brought in what's called CERT teams. They're um, uh, corrections emergency response teams. Mm -hmm. They came and they searched all day Saturday, searched all day Sunday, and searched half of Monday. But on Monday, they gave out pistols to every other guard. And the CERT teams couldn't figure out why they were getting pistols. Guards don't carry pistols in the prison because they can get into the hands of the prisoners. So they handed out pistols. And so, so the guards, they went on high alert. They knew something was up. But anyways, early Monday afternoon, the third day of searching, and they still hadn't found them on the property they called off the search. They, they figured he was gone. Uh, lo and behold, a vehicle was stolen that weekend from Beacon. So they called off the search. Well, um, 
the state was looking real, real bad, of course, trying yeah. to do as much damage control as they could. Why is the most dangerous man housed in a minimum security facility? And how could a paralyzed man walk, yeah. run, and jump a fence and go up 15 foot over a barbed wire fence? So, right. so the prison system was under intense pressure. So anyways, on Monday, a, a news crew showed up after the search was called off and they wanted to do a uh, film, a walkthrough. So for damage control, for the looks for optics, um, the state had uh, prison guards do a walkthrough for the cameras. Gotcha. So they do the walkthrough and they find his radio, a little transistor radio with his uh, police ID number, his uh, prison ID number on it. And it's right by a fence that had been dug out underneath where it looked like someone had crawled under the fence. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, the cert teams were on the bus getting ready to leave. And an official comes on to the Greenhaven prison cert team bus and says, we're going to do one more sweep. And they're like, Oh my God, we've been through this, you know, day after day, he's not out there. So they go through one last time and they're kind of joking around Ali Ali and free Bobby. Come on out, and uh, all of a sudden, one of them starts screaming. Put the gun down. Put the gun down. It's some other choice words. And um, another guard looks ahead, and Garrow is laying flat on his stomach behind a low-lying uh, tree branch. You can hardly see him; just the white of his face. And he doesn't have his glasses, and he's pointing the gun at the voices because he can't see worth a crap. But they see him pointing when whoever yells freeze, drop the gun. He's wow. Pointing, and he finally shoots and he hits a guard about only five yards away because the guard was kind of looking to his left to see what the yelling was about. And the sun, it was sunset at that point. It was around eight o'clock in the fall. So the sun was bright. And uh, anyways, he got shot. Another guard tackled him and saved his life. And they returned fire and killed killed him and uh that was the end of him and he was 42 years old and that's wow. how he did so much damage wow now our listeners can get so much more detail we talked a lot tonight yes. but so much more detail from your book sworn to silence yeah sworn to and silence by jim tracy and it, it can be purchased anywhere any bookstore Anywhere online, Walmart, Target. Um, <laughs> it's fascinating. And I have to tell you, when people found out you were going to be on tonight, everybody has a Twitter about you being on. And we have a lot of people that said that they've already read your book and they loved it. So they were oh, looking good. forward to hearing about you and about this. And I will say, I heard a little snippet or saw a little bit of the part of the book, but it, it showed that um, at one point, Am I correct that you and your father had gone to your family camp? Yes. And he had nested story in there for I left a bit? out. And let me, I'll tell you that. I'll tell the listeners that quickly. Um, I was very familiar with Speculator because my father hunted there every fall. Um, him and a bunch of friends had a hunting camp. Um, and when I was six and seven years old, which would have been 1971 and 72, I would follow him around up there in the summer with my BB gun <laughs> with the camp and speculator. And so when I was eight in the summer of 73 
and Garrow was running around speculator, I was reading the paper and following it because, you know, I knew exactly where he was. And right. we got a call one night that he had broke into our camp. Oh my gosh. And it was uh, uh, right after he broke into our camp, he had stolen the car up the road. There was a boys Christian camp that's still there called Deerfoot Lodge. He stole the car from there after he left our camp and took off. So he was gone. So we went up there on Thursday, August 9th. And uh, so as an eight-year-old boy, I saw he had taken a white uh, topped table, a card table, placed it in front of the door. And uh, he must have jumped up with one leg and uh, slithered through the window, the transom above the door. But his big boot print was on the uh, table. So I remember oh, wow. looking at the boot print and my father smiling at me because the thing was huge. And uh, my father was a real, real sensible man. Um, his father was a police officer and uh, he only brought a 22 pistol with him. And so I knew, you know, Garrow must not be around. And uh, But it was well reported by then that he was in the Mineville area, although he was still loose. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, so I saw it. So then... You know, I knew all about the Garrow case. It so. left an impression on you. Um, yeah. And then point, of being able to feel what he, that was in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I can still picture it. And, and I felt like, you know, he's probably right there, you know, watching us. And, you know, so it was, it was a scary time. And then in 2000, I was working for the Post Star in Glens Falls. And uh, I suggested to the crime writer to write it. And uh, he didn't think it was worth writing. Oh my goodness. The editor said, why don't you write it? You know the story. So I wrote it and it, it was a big deal at the time. Um, it won a bunch of awards and, and got a big reaction from people. And uh, I said, well, you know, I should do the book someday. And well, you uh, did it. Yeah, I finally, finally, finally finished the book. And Jim, <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on and sharing your information and, and everything about this. And again, to mm -hmm. our listeners, look up um, on, you know, on Amazon or wherever you can get the book, uh, Sworn to Silence by Jim Tracy. It is excellent. Jim, do you have other ways that our, our listeners can um, reach out to you or connect with you, follow you? Yeah, they can email me. And the email is uh, jptrace, J-P-T-R-A-C-E, at hotmail.com and i will be this saturday night i will be in minerva new york in essex right. county um they have a new pavilion up there donnelly pavilion behind the town hall and i'll be uh doing a presentation up there oh great and oh wonderful we'll, we'll yeah be showing they yeah they can see it. we'll be showing slides and uh um i think we're going to listen to a lot of the uh NPR broadcast uh, the buried bodies case which which I was involved with um, yeah which I think you heard because you told me about the harmony sounding like the sweet old man yes <laughs> that, that was on the buried bodies case podcast oh okay that's what oh, I listened to the whole thing I didn't realize that that's where it was but yeah it, and and it was NPR radio.org okay. did it for NPR so I, I think Got it. I'm going to do a little introduction and then I think we're going to play that because that's absolutely incredible. And matter of fact, Mrs. Petz, Sue Petz's mother is on there and she's mm -hmm. not spoken to anyone. Right. And she's on at the end and it's very heart wrenching. 
It is. It yeah. is. It was, that, it was a great, great um, way they covered it on there too. One, one quick thing about the pets is, is uh, um, Mr. Pets flew in from Chicago and met with Mr. Armani and faced man to man, dad to dad, father to father and asked wow. if he had any, his client had any information on uh, the whereabouts of his daughters because they were desperate. And, um, and Armani had to tell him no. So the the girl who uh, did the podcast, um, Brenna Farrell, is originally from Indian Lake. Mm. She she did the podcast. She worked, you know, for NPR, and uh, she was able to get Mrs. Pets to go on there and talk. And uh, yeah. Mrs. Pets comes on at the end. But I think we're gonna we're gonna play that. We're gonna show some slides, and then I'm gonna take some questions. So that's unbelievable. At six thirty. There's an ice cream social. Stewart's <laughs> donating ice cream um, oh, beforehand. So if anybody wants to come see that, uh, be great. It's Saturday at 6 30. Thank you so much again, Jim. We really appreciate it. And let us know what your next um, you know, endeavor is or or right. uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be excited to to feature you again. But I really appreciate you coming on and the timing of it was perfect. And um, thank you so, so much. You're welcome. Nice talking. Thank everybody. you. Oh, that was wonderful. Michelle, as always, thank you so much for being my partner in crime. <laughs> and um, as well as D. Scott, thank you so much for always being amazing. Thanks for the thumbs up. And thanks to all our listeners on our 50th uh, podcast episode. Really appreciate all of you, your suggestions and your comments. So keep you know, subscribing and listening and sharing, and uh, we'll see you all soon. Stay blessed. All my friends are eating steak, it's slow. Wait for them to ask you who you know. Please don't make any sad news. You don't know. Sitting next to you, you love another murderer sitting next to you.